Hey, hey, watch what you're doing there, sack monkey. You're bruising my Duralog. Hurry up! I can't stand here jabbing you all day. Jeez, ow, stop. Bad boys have feelings too, you know. No, you don't. Uh, excuse me, is there a problem here? No, I can handle it. I'll get you, Squealer. Ow, oh, that's it. On behalf of Sack Stuffers Local 199, I'm calling a strike. Strike! 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 Dives on histories, assassinations, affairs, crimes, coups, conspiracies, cover-ups, terrors, and trials. We talk about bad people who make history and the history that made them. I'm your co-host, Isaac. I'm your co-host, Peter. And Peter, uh, we're starting out with our first real full-length Hoffa episode. That's right. We're, uh, we're, we're coming to grips with the man himself. And that's uh, where we'll pull the rug on you, because this is an episode really more about Teamsters. Yes. And yeah. Union organizing. Yes, and, you know, that was an important part of what Jimmy Hoffa did before he became known as a boss in his own right. He was an organizer of work. But, of course, this is a, this is a podcast about crimes in history, and we teased our audience with talking about how we're going to tell for them how Jimmy Hoffa ended up abducted and murdered at the Marcus Red Fox restaurant in 1975. So we come up on that anniversary. In fact, if you're listening to this episode, you're probably on that anniversary, July 30th. But to understand why a, a group of mafia mercenaries in suits would abduct and kill Hoffa, to understand why he's attempting to take control of Detroit Local 299 or take back control of Local 299, understand any of that, we have to kind of go back to the beginning. Mm. Dewey Cox has to think about his whole life before he plays. <laughs> and we got to think about Jimmy Hoffa's whole life before we can definitively reveal what happened to him. APHOV exclusive. <laughs> but this isn't exactly going to be a biography of Hoffa. It's going to be more like a biography of the forces and the people that went into building this huge machine that was the International Brotherhood of Teamsters in the heart of the world's biggest capitalist economy. Yeah, I feel like we don't have a ton of native frame of reference at this point for what shaped Hoffa and for what Hoffa shaped this, this huge labor power machine. Yeah, and we're not trying, as we said before, we're not trying to do like a hagiography here, like a great man history. But at this stage, uh, Hoffman and, and his allies and all these people around him are really tiny people at this mm. point in the story that we're about to tell. They're, in Hoffa's words, cogs ready to be ground up by the machine. Because a lot of the story is a kind of arc about how a really small, determined, hard-boiled bunch of warehouse workers assumed a kind of rapid ascent in the ranks kind of generalship. And they fought pitched battles uh, until the organization that they had had the entire country's transportation system under control. It's also an action movie. Mm. Uh, you might call it like Strawberry Boys versus Little Bastard. Mm. Talk more about the Little Bastard and all the Little yeah, Bastards. Strawberry Boys. Because the thing is, is like almost in a frankly like prestige TV 
even like sappy movie way. All of these friends that Hoffa has at this beginning stage of his organizing career, these first battles, these guys are still around mm -hmm. and still like his closest people and involved in all of the machinations and the betrayals and stuff like that. When he gets killed in 1975. Right, so 40 years down the line. Yeah, these people are out in the 30s. Like on the day, like a crucial thing in the timeline of who killed him is whether Chucky O'Brien, his kind of semi-foster, semi-sort of adopted son from around this time, was delivering a fish mm. to Robert Holmes, his other good friend and organizing around this time. All these people are the same people 40 years down the line. Well, they're not the same people. Mm. <laughs> yes, they've uh, they've gone from tiny people to large people. It's a, it's a big people. Big, big people. So it all starts here. And uh, Isaac, what are how did you find out about all this? What are your sources? Yeah, it's source acknowledgement time. So one thing that I've had a lot of fun with is finding uh, books that are ostensibly by Jimmy Hoffa and they definitely had like he definitely has a big hand in them although it's clearly most of it Hoffa pacing around and yelling at mm. a writer yeah uh so Hoffa the real story from 1975 which is the book that may have possibly gotten him killed didn't get published until after he disappeared mm -hmm. uh that is written as told to Oscar Fraley mm -hmm. we have the trials of Jimmy Hoffa by Jimmy Hoffa. As far as like a really well-researched biography, the kind of standard here is still Hoffa by Arthur Sloan. Ralph and Estelle James's Hoffa and the Teamsters is really good. And at times we are going to draw from uh, author that we don't like so much, but he still wrote a book with some research. And that is Thaddeus Russell's Out of the Jungle about Hoffa and the Teamsters. So presently we're in the jungle. Presently we're going to start out in so one thing we're not going to get into this episode is because we don't want to just tell an entire history of the growth of EIBT and Jimmy Hoffa's role in it because it gets into just a whole ton of minutiae and not exactly the most interesting minutiae like jurisdictional fights and who had the contract with the brewery workers and who the mafia org chart the mafia org chart of like whether it's the detroit partnership or the detroit family mm -hmm. when it's a family we're, we're just not going to get into that because this episode's about action but yeah put, put down your fork board put down your string we're going to tell you a good story someone interests us here instead we're going to talk about how this crew of broken half-starved men and women built the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, specifically Local 299, with a healthy dose of violence. Mm. So first, Peter, we should probably talk about Hoffa's origins himself. Yeah, where does it come from? So Hoffa was born in the very, and lived in the very rough and tumble, hard scrabble, coal mining, and really coal shipping town, like a transshipment point town of Brazil, Indiana. Mm. Uh, where he only lived till about seven years old when his mother moved them to Detroit, which would become his home forevermore. His mother basically ruled over him and his brother as a really hard taskmaster woman. There's not any nice way of putting it, even though he tries to put it in the nicest way possible. He just constantly alludes to, uh, let's just call it corporal punishment by her. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Where uh, was the dad? The dad died when he was seven years old before he... Mm. moved from brazil indiana and 
from a very young age, he was out like selling scraps and selling various things to, to at, like kind of as a, like a vendor, like food and stuff like that to workers in Detroit on their breaks. The real kind of transformative moments though with Hoffa happened during the Great Depression. That's actually what he harkens back to the most. That's what until the end of his life, he thought the US was going to go back to inevitably because it was a capitalist country. So the way that Hoffa grew into this environment though, is he's a kid who actually experiences a full on disillusionment. He was raised on Horatio Alger novels. Mm. And you probably know more detail on this than me, Peter, but Horatio Alger novels are like these fantastic, like 19th century uh, books for kids, basically. Yeah. Where arguably roughly in the young adults, oh, now grown ups read a lot of young adults. And grown ups did read, everybody read Horatio Alger. Yeah. But like the, it's like always about like a plucky, hardworking kid who comes from a poor background. Yes. yes. Important to know. And then through a little tiny bit of luck, which is usually like a rich benefactor who recognizes that they are a virtuous, hardworking kid mm -hmm. and working very hard and yeah. studying very hard. Following the rules. They become wealthy. Yes. They, uh, yeah. Ragged Dick was the first one. <laughs> the title hits a, little different. hits a little different now, but back at the time, it just meant you know, a, a young man named Richard who was down on his luck. And yeah, they were extremely popular. Um, and yeah, they became this kind of, uh, I mean, even today you could say, oh, that just sounds like a Horatio Alger story uh, to tell a story of, you know, unlikely success by dint of personal virtue and aided, but not, not putting their, so the rich benefactor wouldn't just give his money to Ragged Dick. Right. The rich benefactor. Factor would give you the opportunity to show yourself as a hard worker, an honest person, uh, as someone who displays all the good bourgeois virtues, and then th therefore you would be able to show you you would be able to gain that way without him having to part with any of his wealth, right. and, and you might be able to marry uh, into his family. Exactly. So Hoffa with this kind of worldview uh goes through school to the eighth grade and in his own account he kind of just decides i am now done with schooling and i'm ready to make my my fortune in reality it seems more like uh, as sloan kind of characterized it that the pressure at home to have enough money to survive mm -hmm. and become so great that Hoffa was like, I want to, I'm, I'm wasting my time here. I need to go. I mean, like, I, this is eight hours that I could be working and earning money yes. for the home and putting food on the table. Mm -hmm. His mother at the time was operating a laundry out of her house, like mm -hmm. a laundromat out of her house, basically taking these soiled work clothes and charging like pennies. Yeah. His, his brother was doing the same thing, mm -hmm. essentially. And so he, he put himself to work. Uh, usually it's like a stock boy that it, this, this is before like just before the depression actually hits that he's earning a living doing this seeming to make his way and then the depression hits he's he's laid off and eventually he gets a job at the place that is the crucial crucial cog in everything else that happens which is the kroger warehouse in troy now this isn't the only warehouse 
I know, but this seems like it was a the, the major shipment point mm. where loads of freight cars coming in. So so flush up against a railroad yard, you'd have this corridor warehouse, railroad cars and what they called reefers at the time, yeah. which I looked at that kind of cockeyed for a second. It turns out they were refrigerated yeah. cars. Uh, were unloaded by these Kroger workers, uh, hauling pallets off the, the carts, separating out all the, the materials, the vegetables and shit like that. And then they would get picked up by truck drivers, local truck drivers, mm -hmm. to take them to various parts of Detroit and beyond in Michigan from the Kroger warehouse. So you had over 100 workers at this place in a hot, hot, sweaty stultifying environment and the truly terrifying thing is that you'd have just lined up outside on any day half starved dirty closed holes in their shoes people waiting for the workers inside to get fired mm -hmm. like to slip up to drop something to fuck up that day mouth off to the boss to to whatever boss it is and get fired and then they would have a chance to like maybe get enough money to eat mm. or a place to sleep. And Hoffa in his, uh, in the trials of Jimmy Hoffa, he actually wrote about this. I'll read it aloud now because I don't have a better way to describe it, the working conditions of this place. So for a 48 hour week, we could earn just $15.36. We had to put in 60, 70, sometimes 80 hours at the warehouse to get 48 hours of work. Well, we were paid only for the actual work time spent loading or unloading. There were no regular work rules, I observed, and our contemptible little foreman could make them up as he went along and thus create the grounds for firing anyone he didn't like. In addition, hardworking breadwinners were often fired without cause simply to make room for college boys or school kids relatives of the brass of the company who wanted to make tuition money or pocket cash to increase their vacation time fun. There was no job security whatsoever, and the desperate unemployed would form lines around the warehouse, waiting for the nightly firings, hoping to be chosen as replacements. It's pretty grim. It's pretty fucking grim. <laughs> there is yeah. like a 20-year-old. Yeah. You know, I think sometimes in our... Uh, the way we look at history, it goes from like Dickens, you know, people bad, you know, industrial poverty. Yeah. Uh, and then there's something like the Depression when no one's working. And then it's World War II and uh, all of a sudden the factory workers are in Cadillacs. But I think we don't quite understand, we don't, we don't necessarily take on board how, for lack of a better term, Dickensian uh, things could be and how control over work over just you know the basic uh, the, the the right to work as they call it um being in the hands of employers and often they're you know one step above indigents themselves you know nasty foremen yeah uh they're essentially the ones who, who who decide who works and who doesn't you know imbued with the power of their bosses how much control over the right to work can be used to make or break in lives, societies. It's it's one of yeah, the it's just as power. It's as if the foreman at any time had a gun. 
Yeah. They, they, he just told not even to the worker, but like also to their family, to right. like whoever hangers on. Yeah, it's have. real. It really is for lack of, for, you know, controversial term wage slavery. Like it's not the same as chattel slavery. He couldn't sell you down the river, but he could basically destroy your life, destroy your family, likely lead to you and quite possibly lead to you or people in your family die uh, based on his whim, based on a college kid's whim. Uh, if they know some, you know, an accountant in the office and they want to make a little money, where where would Detroiters, rich Detroiters go for vacation? I don't know Michigan geography that well. They'll go up the lake for, uh, you know, spring break if they want a few extra dollars. And, and I have no doubt that even though it's more extreme, all of our listeners, many of our listeners, like have some sense of the palpable fear of getting fired mm -hmm. for doing something mm -hmm. not quite right or stupid and then having to to look at rent the next month yep. but there's also an interesting moment where Alpha, being a, being a curious young man is kind of contemplating where this warehouse sits in the whole system and where he is in that and the language is a little it's a little overwritten but i'd still like to to read it maybe we'll we'll cut it out if it's not as good because of this upbringing he says I might not have known at so impressionable an age of the problems of the, the little fellow behind the scenes, the nameless, faceless guy who keeps the machine going. And then this is the sentence I like. I might not have realized the truth about his fears, his constant insecurity, his pointless frustrations, his perpetual submersion in a pool of hopelessness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because he didn't, he, he's, he comes in still believing in Horatio Alger, but then he sees. Yeah, probably like a lot of people even feral Dobbs. oh sure yeah yeah he was a republican yeah yeah and you know, before the depression right yeah this was the 20s this was you know a high time for kind of you know it was herbert hoover's era right for um well though I, I should say the the kroger warehouse is not the 20 that's that's in the 30s the early okay but i'm saying before yeah 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 well, it's the 20s. before the depression was the 20s which i mean you don't want to overstate but it was kind of a high, it's still seen today by people who refer to themselves as classical liberals. Yeah, just we can get into why that's a jerk off name at some point, but uh, it's still seen as like this high tide of, you know, the bourgeois values essentially. Yeah. So Hoffa kind of sees where their warehouse is in the in the entire production system by saying, "I thought of the man hours involved in getting one head of lettuce to the city dwellers in Detroit from its birth as a seed in the Imperial Valley in California." to its ultimate repository in someone's icebox. And I was filled with sense of insignificance, aware more than ever before of the fact that I was a tiny and expendable cog in a complex machine. So Kafa's job was unloading these reefers and boss cars, as I said, and rapidly because of this situation, because of the massive power that a foreman who had power to fire and hire had, he came into quick contact and along with all the other workers, with a guy they all refer to as the little bastard, who might be responsible for the future power of the Teamsters, right. all, all on his own. If they had, if they, if they instead had a, had a like, foreman called, you know, the big nice guy, then yeah. we could have all avoided this. This guy, however, had been essentially selected for this role by the economic system. Mm -hmm. he, had, he had been honed into a, a, to a sadism machine. Yes, a tool for, for, the, for capital and the the, the uh, discipline of labor. And I would think that this guy would be a little bit fictitious were it not for the fact that he was a real guy named Al Johnson who worked at the Kroger Warehouse. Mm. And he was a very much a real guy. 
Al Johnson, the little bastard, was the warehouse loading dock supervisor, and by all accounts, everyone uniformly referred to him as the little bastard. Mm -hmm. And Hoffa says he had an unclean, unhealthy personality, which showed in the way he got his kicks, getting, as they say, his jollies by abusing and threatening the people who worked under his supervision and making their lives miserable. His greatest thrill, manifested by a triumphant smile, came when he was able to fire someone and making it stick with management. The more desperately they needed the job, perhaps he had a sick wife or hungry children, or was on the verge of losing his home to creditors, the greater the thrill of the little bastard when he sent the man packing. Only a perverted mind could find enjoyment in such actions. Hoffa added uh, in the longer-winded way that he could never exonerate management for mm. keeping the little bastard on mm. and knew that it was because little bastard served his role so yes. well. He went on further. Yeah. He, he, described, he, he also described him as the ramrod position immediately above the sweat labor like a top field hand. Mm. At the time, he had kindred souls in tens of thousands of commercial enterprises across the continent. Little bastards everywhere. His kind helped make the Depression more terrifying and dreadful than it need have been. I have never forgiven or forgotten the man, and I'll carry my contempt for him for as long as I live. He never made a request. He never issued an order. Everything was in a regal, irritated command. He had an annoying way of urging us to greater speed and unloading the reefers. He'd holler, move, 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 but would come out, hoo, hoo, hoo. He sounded, for all the world, like a little drill sergeant in a British line outfit. Okay, like, how is it that move comes out move? If you're trying to, like, really go from the diaphragm, I think. Yeah, is it like he's, like, he's, yeah. like, he's like puffing out so much, like, ah, yeah. Ah. yeah, that the listener's going to love hearing that. <laughs> uh, yeah. People hate what they fear when someone sets himself up as a little tin god and wields absolute power over your children's diet, clothes, shelter, and medical attention. He is feared. When that tin god abuses that power, uses it indiscriminately, merely for laughs, he is hated with a bitterness and depth that can never be understood by those who have not experienced it. So I think we're getting at, you know, the emotional core here, right? Whatever Hoffa may have lacked in terms of theoretical sophistication, or you could argue in terms of certain principles, uh, he did not lack for a genuinely adversarial attitude towards management. Yeah, he did based not in like experience. Being, yeah, he did not like, you know, you, you can imagine just seeing over and over again, guys like, begging to keep their job and just oh, being yeah. humiliated oh, yeah. by this little shit being like, oh, I, I like, like, please don't do this. Like, I, I didn't mean to drop the crate. Yeah, like, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't mean to tell you that you're a little bastard. Yeah. You know. Like a daily, and you know, if there were... If I there, had two kids to feed. Right. If there were people lined up there every night, then that was likely a daily, a, 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 roughly a daily occurrence. Yeah. But he so, was just flexing his muscle. Yeah, you'd like be seeing that every guy. And I assume he'd be working like six days a week, maybe seven. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he could. Yeah. So obviously, given how just absolutely humiliated everyone is being treated in this place and how intimately that's linked to the fact that the little bastard can fire them at any time and someone will replace them at any time, uh, their power to do things seems really, really remote seems like there's no way out of this kind of invisible prison 
Sam Calhoun is a worker at the warehouse with Hoffa, and he kind of has the the kind of like the old con position in a great escape movie, you know? Yeah, yeah. He's the old hand having organized at his previous workplace. He's vaguely alluded to sometimes. It's just really kind of like rumor, like Mm -hmm. scuttlebutt talk, that he was a labor radical at one time. And uh, one thing I can say in that Farrell Dobbs actually talks about a lot in his audio talks is that during this time when the U.S. was as little union as it is today in its workplaces, there were still loads of older hands, like sure guys from and women from previous eras of yes. organizing. Old ex wobblies, old yeah. ex some AFL guys, old ex socialist radicals, mm-hmm. old ex communists. Yeah, old, you were old, still communists. Right. You were only a you're, you're by that by the time the depression hits, you're ten years out from the big strike wave in 1919. Yeah a little bit less out from the Red Scare, the first Red Scare that had driven, you know, literally just deporting without trial, numerous, you know, arguably broke the back of the organized, but the thing with with breaking the back of the organized movement, it's a little bit, you know, it's a little tacky and obviously you prefer having the movement intact, but there's that, the the metaphor of like the dandelion, right? Or like they tried to bury us, they didn't know we were seen. <laughs> as a, a in, to use one fairly chintzy, at least chintzy coming coming from coming from me. But yeah, you you wind up dispersing these people like dandelion teeth all over all over the map. And if they can get activated again, if they could if they could smell the herd and get get going, then they can they can do some stuff. Yeah, it, it's not all the institution. Like so, some of it yes. is just a a guy was in a strike before. Yeah, he knows what to do. Right, you know, a, a different person has has read a pamphlet before, and yeah. they are at least going to tell people how they should be pissed off rather than yes. just be pissed off. Yeah, it matters. Yeah, that's up to you. And with Sam Calhoun, it what's interesting is he talks about how Calhoun would identify every time someone was about to kind of just like individually like mm-hmm. blow their top off and mouth off to the little bastard, and thereby get fired. Mm-hmm. And he would approach them immediately and intercede before that and say, like, no, save your grievances. We're going to go ahead and list them all out. Mm-hmm. We're going to go about this in an organized way. We're going to form a union. Mm-hmm. We're going to form a committee of the workers here. We're going to represent ourselves. The other thing he would do is basically every time the little bastard would, like, humiliate someone without firing them, he would go mm-hmm. to that person and be like, hey, yeah. you know it would be great. Yeah. Maybe you should consider we we should have a union. Yeah. Of course, they're all still terrified, but at some point, it, you know, they're... You lay the groundwork yeah. if you can. Like, sometimes shit just happens spontaneously, but your spontaneity is more likely to carry through into something long-term if you've prepared the ground. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of... So this really comes to a head, all of this organizing work, when a shipment of strawberries from Florida comes in on these boxcars. And you have to imagine it's the early morning. These guys have been waiting around for hours. The shipment comes in, but behind the scenes without management even knowing it, they've already figured out that this is this opportune choke point mm-hmm. that no one can do anything about. They don't even know it yet. So the little bastard fires two guys who do whatever on the loading sock. I, I think they dropped a crate or or something yeah. like that. Or he just didn't like them. with that new cargo coming in from Florida of the strawberries. If the men unload it, safely goes off to 
the trucks. However, if it's left on there mm-hmm. for just a few hours before preservatives, before GMOs, yes. before is a warehouse presumably is not air conditioned. No, of yes. course not. Yeah. Why would we make people happy like right, that? Right, right. That's a cost, Peter. Yes, it is. That's on the negative side of life. Mm. So those strawberries will rot. They yes. the company will lose tens of thousands of dollars. Just a whole, whole, whole lot back then. Yeah. And you never know, the little bastard might even get fired. Right. <laughs> Along with everybody in the warehouse. So yeah. It's kind of like economic, just as the little bastard had his own economic gun to point at any worker, they now have a bomb to just demolish yeah. his whole livelihood too. Yes. And Hoffa being kind of identified by Sam Calhoun as a guy who can buttonhole people, talk to them, and mm-hmm. lead them is the one who's in the warehouse at that moment and has them all step back and refuse to unload mm-hmm. the strawberries until the little bastard gets management. And he tries every trick in the book. He says they're all going to be fired. Probably says a lot of swear words that Hoffa doesn't quote. Yeah. But eventually they do get uh, a union recognized out of it mm-hmm. temporarily. And that union eventually affiliates with the Teamsters. This union, however, is broken. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I, I hasten to mention, and throughout the 1930s, actually, Hoffa and the people that he worked with, Sam Calhoun and others, will go back to the Kroger warehouses in Detroit and try to unionize them over and over oh, again, wow. increasing pitch battles. Even though they, by the you know by world by the time World War II comes around, they lead a serious union and are being paid uh-huh. salaries they're still going back to the Kroger warehouse being like you and son of a bitch and they're not being blackballed like you figure they wouldn't be able to no I mean they're not trying to get hired oh, there. Oh, they're going in and yes. trying to organize the workers in that yes. warehouse yeah 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 presumably sending in other teamsters who are part of the union yeah yeah that's amazing so Kroger's does hold out but you know at least it's a start of something exactly and eventually he does get kind of quits this position because the little bastard is following him around all the time now that he knows he's yeah. the, the leader of the, the, the workers here and is just looking for any mistake he can do. And then finally one day, Hoffa just like throws down a crate and says yeah. like, I'm, I'm out of here. Yeah, yeah. Having been offered a position with the local of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. Local 299. And this whole incident's kind of important because his kind of core group and in the core group of these guys in local 299 at the time just remained the core group of Hoffa people all the way through to his death. Uh, Sam Calhoun stays like a union officer until he dies. Mm. Robert Holmes, who's this like Scottish guy, Rizzy Welsh, he stays in there until Hoffa dies. He mm. outlives Hoffa. Mm. The union was headed by the guy Owen Burr Brennan who again stays associated with Hoffa. Local 299 also has a couple of characters that remain important throughout the entire saga and we'll just highlight them here. One of them being Frank Fitzsimmons, who is another like Detroit tough guy and everything like that, but mainly factors in as like kind of just a Hoffa stooge. Mm-hmm. He's very much the yes man to Hoffa and that's kind of what Hoffa sees in him later on is that mm-hmm. he's going to appoint him president. Hoffa will be able to pull the strings behind the scenes. The other one is a guy named Roland McMaster, who deserves his own special notice here. We've been trying to figure out, like, what fictional character could maybe, like, 
our listeners latch on to as being like Roland McMaster, but McMaster is just kind of like a fictional character already. McMaster is the heavy of Local 299. As you can tell, to be a union local in Detroit in the 1930s, you had to have a lot of strong arm men, a Mm -hmm. lot of of fighters. Yeah. And Roland McMaster is basically the guy you like, Send in to like end yeah. the dispute, and I don't mean in a peaceful way. He was like 6'5, 250 to 300 pounds, and he had a glass eye mm-hmm. that just stayed perpetually forward. One incident was actually during a jurisdictional fight with the brewery workers, I think, during the 1940s. And this is actually from another source, sorry, Dan Moldea's The Hoffa Wars, which we referenced in the first episode. In this fight, McMaster towering over a car, it was a car of organizers who we're trying to rival organizers, rival organizers trying to get away from the teamsters who had surrounded them at that moment. McMaster towering above their car, crashed his steely fist into the hood, and then with one jab, smashed his hand through the window, grabbed the driver by his hair, and pulled him through the shattered glass. Mm. Preventing the driver from leaving, McMaster tore out the gear shift handle and began beating the other union man in the car with it. Insane. It's a fucking ogre. Yeah, so like kind of like Chewbacca, but mean. Yeah, evil Chewbacca. Yeah, because like he doesn't seem he's. It's not like he's a nice guy otherwise. No. Or I mean, you'll notice that was him beating other union organizers, not like beating up company goons. No, so I'm he sure he did that too. Yeah, he could give less of a shit about discriminating between them. Just yeah. point McMaster to the people like a bullet. Yeah. McMaster. It's also worth noting did not give that much of a shit about, like, other people or, like, the cause or something. He very much, like, feathered his own nest once the Union got... Got big, yeah. Got big. And moreover, as time went on, even though he's, like, a... He's a a Hoffa day one, so he's he's in Local 299 for life, basically. Mm -hmm. He and Hoffa do not see uh, eye to eye, no pun intended, with the Master for a long time. You know, with that episode of violence, maybe it's time to talk about uh, one of the more interesting topics of the 1930s, which is uh, goon squads yeah. and fights. People people, people try to bring the goon squad back, but uh, I don't think they do that good of a job, in my opinion. Not at all. Like, you know, the, the Proud Boys want to be a goon squad. They, they, they say they want to be a goon squad, but, you know, one or two pretty inspired. One or two, like, who could have been, like, minor goons back then. Mm. Uh, you know, but they're more like gym guys, really. You you would get a gym guy to be a goon, maybe. I mean, there were boxing gyms and stuff back then, but you wouldn't want that to be the majority of the guys. And they're not even the majority of the Proud Boys. Most of the Proud Boys are just dorks. So they're not doing a good job at the whole goon squad thing. They're probably actually a bit closer in spirit to like the frat boys of that era. For sure. Who would be, or or this era, frankly, who, you know, they actually used to use frat boys sometimes to break strikes they, they use they use harvard kids in boston to try yep. to break the police strike in 1919 yeah 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 so that you know but but yeah, there was 1930s some... goons I, just to go on your point 1930s goons i feel like are and, and onward all the way through like the 30s or sorry through the 50s yeah are like of a different era and type they're yes. just like you went to work and you knew that guy who's just like kind of strong yeah and kind of dumb and it just angry about something yeah and also just does something violent every once in a while yeah because of some traumatic brain injury right. and you just have thousands of those guys with no jobs 
Yeah, and and a lot less to lose than virtually anybody alive in the U.S. today. Yeah, more than more, more than like oh, I I watched a bunch of UFC and I trained a lot. Being like I am, I I don't know where my next meal is coming unless I beat up this yeah. this union organizer is a is a whole it's a whole different level of commitment. Yeah, and I'm willing to bet uh they hit a lot harder. Oh yeah. So organizing the 1930s. So with all the goons. With all the goons. Detroit is what was at that time called an open shop city, meaning that the the city is kind of like blue ribbon, you know, tight collar, wealthy and wish they were wealthy owners of businesses and so on declared that no business in Detroit would be in the position of having a union say, we organize your workplace and any of your workers that comes in, any new workers that comes in, they are now automatically a member of the union. Mm-hmm. And you can't hire non-union labor. Mm-hmm. Anyone that comes in or does you do business with, they have to check off dues and pay money to the union. Mm-hmm. And the union has to represent them in disputes with you. Now, Detroit, no union. So anytime a business owner had a major dispute in Detroit, these businessmen would be happy to pull their funds together to really hire in the goon squads, right? Uh, some of which were just kept on retainer by the Ford Motor Company, mm. which had no problem using goon squads all of the time in their security division, right? Yeah, as kind of a fascist police force, yeah, like a little paramilitary. Alpha uh, claimed that like Ford had four to five thousand ex-cons at mm. that time, just tired from based on their prison records. And you have to figure this is around the time uh, one of the clan type groups that was very prominent. In the 20s and was still around the 30s i think the black legion yeah was a michigan they were the ones who probably killed malcolm x's father for instance yeah. uh that they would have been around and probably uh enthusiastic to take part in this kind of thing part of the reason we're talking about goons of course is probably one of the biggest associations that people have with the teamsters certainly people around me I didn't when i was growing up is that there's an association between them and like hired goons mm-hmm or violence uh and we'll get into that but to take it back to the depression era and local 299 when hoff is there first thing to keep in mind is that this local had like nothing <laughs> lawyers had all of their employee goods this local in trying to organize were oftentimes very small businesses we're talking like 10 20 employees even a hundred's not that much and that they struggled with that at the kroger exactly exactly the local had $400 in a bank, which was their strike fund mm-hmm. and everything else. A strike fund, of course, for listeners and forgive, forgive me some listeners, some of whom are literally teamsters. Mm-hmm. We are going to, it seems like spoon feed some very basic union concepts. And if we mess anything up, just go ahead and message us. But a strike fund, of course, is what the union has to give workers as something to live on when they have decided to go on strike and are not working and are saying picking picketing the workplace. In the 1930s, you usually picket the workplace just to force the boss or the owner to recognize that a union represents these workers. And now you have to come and negotiate for conditions and wages and stuff like that. You can't just tell them what they are. Right. Most strikes and pickets were just about union recognition, mm-hmm. not not even anything else. So you had these like shabby looking organizers who uh, no one would probably like envy and be like, I want to be like that guy. 
uh, hold, holding their shoes. The delicious Union Dew money. Yeah. Wearing like clothes that they had washed in like a, a kitchen sink or, mm. or a friend's like bathroom sink mm. day after day. Kind of traveling around like like warrior monks. Mm, like cane and kung fu. Uh, but really they they were were desperate men like kind of trying to pull off heist with these organizing tribes. Mm. In a way, they were paid on the basis of a commission, basically, mm. on each union due card that yeah. they got signed and paid. So, so basically, just... someone pays union dues, they get a cut, mm -hmm. but nothing else. There, it's a it's a little bit of a uh, high intensity Glenn Geary. Glenn yeah, yeah, situation. yeah. They need the leads. Good lead. Hoffa, of course, actually happens to be a great salesman. Yeah, I believe it. And talker upper, uh, but this is really when that skill is honed. But these organizing drives, one has to understand the Teamsters are called the Teamsters because the union was founded originally for team drivers, guys who had carts and the team of horses tugging them along. Mm -hmm. That would be a Teamster. Mm -hmm. They had these unions founded in a lot of cities in the East Coast and especially in the Midwest, like mm -hmm. in Chicago, where there's a lot of that type of business going on. And it was expanded to include the guys who load and unload the stuff from the cart. So mm -hmm. that's why it's the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, Warehousemen, and Helpers. Mm -hmm. That's the official name. Now, of course, under Hoffa in the years to come, it will expand to include like everything that moves. Mm -hmm. But even at this time in Detroit, they're really going to anyone they think maybe like another union won't beat them up mm -hmm. too much mm -hmm. for organizing. So they're like at laundries, they're at any trucking company mm -hmm. at all. They're expanding the site of struggle. And of course, to strong arm on these businesses who are more than willing to hire professional thugs mm -hmm. off the street or turn to their local organized crime boss to lend out some thugs to them, mm -hmm. these guys have to be strong arm guys on the union payroll. And in a practice that continues all the way through the 70s, they do go about hiring guys that are known for being local toughs mm -hmm. on their payroll. Now, that doesn't mean that these are mafia guys. Right. These are literally just guys with felony records for being like stick-up men and strong-arm men. Mm -hmm. And that's the type of person that they want. Yeah. So, I mean, Ralph and Estelle James note that Hoffa was always proud of his own muscle and that of his lieutenants. He boasts that he has never ha needed to hire professional thugs, as did many labor leaders of the 20s and 30s. To do so, he regards as both a sign of weakness and a danger for they might end up being controlled. In other words, these guys were all IBT guys. They were all teamsters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, ahead. so it's not like you said that Hoffa was proud of yeah. his, uh, of bringing them in, making them teamsters. And that made, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if in his self-improvement reading, uh, if Hoffa hadn't read Machiavelli, who was <laughs> who always warned against the use of mercenaries, right? Which was the main way that the Italian princes in his time and for a long time before and after him staffed their militaries, right? People in charge of these little city states, uh, and they did they couldn't rely on their own populations. They thought to fight for them is they might get ideas would hire these mercenary captains, and of course Machiavelli had. Hundreds, if you wanted to choose from them, examples of those mercenary captains then turning on their patrons. Yeah. Whereas Machiavelli, what Machiavelli wanted was the city-states, A, for some of them to unite, to form a bigger pool, and to empower, not that he would use such a, you know, he's a word as that, 
to, to give enough power to the low, lesser classes that they would be interested in fighting in an actual city-state army, not mercenary, and kind of like the Roman Republic, basically. Yeah. And in, in Hoffa's case, had he read that, he certainly seems to have the same philosophy about it. He wanted to make sure, and the Union wanted to make sure, that they had the, the, the muscle on hand, the yes. heavies on hand, that any time there was a strike at mm -hmm. any of their organized work sites or a strike for recognition, that, that picket line would have people who would crack skulls. Yeah, defensively or offensively, I suppose. Exactly. I mean, it's worth saying that like how, how a picket line worked back then is basically a workplace would have a mass of the workers who worked at the workplace in front of it, and they would have to be prepared to block. Yeah, like have a scrummage. Yeah, to, to, to block any other potential employees, mm -hmm. scab workers from coming in. Now, that's often done with moral suasion. Yeah. These days, you might say, but really, there is a huge intimidation factor. I mean, you can pull up any picture of like the Minneapolis general strike from the 30s, and every single one of those guys is armed with a bat. Yeah, like every single one. Oh yeah, and and, it, and picket picket signs themselves, if they're made out of decent wood, uh, you can you can get somebody pretty good with those. Yeah, it, if you were one of those different scabs, like you were going to get hit, mm -hmm. but. A far more common scenario is to break up that picket line with your own and cops. Yeah. There was a lot of fighting with cops. Oh, yeah. I, I can imagine. And Hoffa was proud of it. Probably one of the most brutal, vivid incidents that shows what was going on. Hoffa, by the way, himself talks about getting his head stitched 11 different times during these organizing drives in the 30s just from having his skull cracked. Mm. usually by cops who he never really goes out of his way to like respectfully be like and i believe in cops even though he was literally organizing cops in the later years mm. he was still like yeah they cracked their skulls they yeah, were pretty, yeah. they were pretty shitty mm. but for example one time the gang uh was picketing a tobacco company for union recognition i'm guessing this is like the warehouse of the tobacco company and the picketing extended to the night so that they to make sure that they didn't allow scab labor to be brought in yeah. on vans, put into the warehouse, and have the work done. So by the time they're back with the picket in the morning, tobacco's already been moved out. Yeah. So they're having to pick it through the night, and it's cold. Mm -hmm. It's Detroit. Yeah, They light up a trash can fire. And Hoffa's brother, William Hoffa, Billy, mm -hmm. uh, my brother Billy was among those standing around the fire when the son of the owner of the company drove up. Where's Hoffa? He asked, getting out of his car. Over there, someone told him, pointing to my brother. The guy walked over to Billy and, without a word, whipped out a pistol and shot him in the stomach. A gut shot, listeners, is one of the most painful possible things. Yeah. Uh, Billy lived. Uh, and as Hoffa says, with just no elaboration, and it was typical of the times that no warrant issued for the company owner's son. Mm -hmm. So he, he just walked up and with 12 witnesses around, pulled out a pistol and shot him in the yeah, gut and walked, away. and walked away, even though absolutely everyone knew who it was. Yeah. Yeah. And it's worth noting that, you know, you hear the line, don't cross a picket line. And that's a good thing to do. You shouldn't. But a lot of the times the pickets, at least the ones I've seen, have been more informational pickets. Yeah. Like it's informing you that, you know, the business is on strike, but work is still happening there. I don't know. I haven't seen that many pickets in my life 
that were actually blockading scabbing workers from coming in or if they did it wasn't successful i don't know yeah uh like this there there have been a few strikes at grocery stores where we've seen that around here in the last few years and in that case not crossing the picket line is showing solidarity with the workers which is important and you should do but back then the stakes were higher yeah. so like the origins of that phrase never cross a picket line is you know even if you need to do so to, to eat to support your family you have to show across class solidarity because that could be you at some point, right? Yeah. It could be somebody scabbing you. And if you all pull together, then maybe you could get something better than having to be in this, you know, shitty situation. And, and I mean, one of the things that the Communist Party and others did during this time, which really reinforced that solidarity, is they had unemployed works councils yeah. that were demanding payment for workers that were looking for work. People on those unemployed work councils, so they would gather unemployed workers, would go and reinforce the picket line. Right. So not only would it be, you know, the 10 or 11 people from that workplace, but it might be 50 people, including, you know, 40 angry unemployed workers, which is a, a very intimidating sight. But part of the reason why you don't as much uh, see that, and you see less and less of it as the story goes on of those violent pickets, uh, isn't just, you know, a new era of labor relations, but a closing web of legal injunctions mm -hmm. that we will explain in further episodes. One of the other things that I'm just going to go out of my way to talk about in this part is saw an interview with uh, Thaddeus Russell where he says, oh, the way that the Teamsters would organize stuff in the 30s is they would say, we're organizing your workplace. Your workers are all going to pay us now. And if they didn't do it, we'll bomb your trucks. Mm -hmm. And that is wrong. Yeah. One is that you just, you would not have workers coming out on a picket line and fighting with police and risking life and limb, like literally like losing yeah. eyes, oh, yeah. teeth, fingers, mm -hmm. shit like that. If someone hadn't come and talked to them right. about the union, if they didn't want a union, that just, right. that's well, not the way it works. Yeah, well, you see, that's politics and politics is basically government. And we know how Thaddeus Russell feels about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other thing is I, I noticed in his book, he said like oh, at, at this time, you know, that the Teamsters threatened to bomb someone and they were indicted for actually bombing this workplace. The only indictment I found was when the Teamsters threw what was referred to in the Detroit Free Press as a stench bomb. Ooh. A stench bomb. Yeah. Which was thrown at the uh, house of an owner of a ginger ale factory. Oh. I imagine him as being a, just instantly I thought of it as being a lot like uh, Mr. Fish Odor from Bob's Burgers. <laughs> but but really, I mean, that's just par for the course. They did use bombs, though. Uh -huh. But here's the thing, and this is one way to think about it. The bigger tactic here is using the mass picket because that prevents other people from coming to the workplace. Yes. It keeps the workplace shut down. Yes. The bombs that were used, and you can find newspaper articles on this from 38, 37, 39, that the Teamsters would use, were done in kind of like the dead of night. Mm -hmm. They would damage property, and it was yeah. in the middle of a negotiation process. Yeah. So it's kind of like this, like, covert sortie. Yeah, it was, uh, it was property destruction. Yeah, it was like this, like, kind of like a, like, sortie out from the union onto the employer's mm -hmm. turf and they destroy a little bit of their stuff so yeah. that they know that there's a cost like a yes. price tag attack yes yes and the ones that i found like they were notably they were done with low explosives mm -hmm. so the bomb guys at 
local 299 at the time were not like rigging up sticks of dynamite right. with timers and then like blowing up a workplace or blowing up some guy's house. Yeah. They were rigging up a black powder bomb mm -hmm. with some kind of piping. Yeah. I would guess. And it would be like thrown out of a car. So mm -hmm. Kroger's, for example, in the late 30s, like deals with like three different attacks where a car drives by middle of the night, bomb gets thrown out. It's in the middle of like having strikes and pickets. Mm -hmm. Not that are there, but that have been there the past like few days. Yeah. It got to the point where like they they called in like some Michigan National Guard people to stand outside Kroger stores, yeah. keep them from uh from getting bombed. That ginger ale plant owner, for example, had a big black powder bomb actually like blow the roof off. Mm. So it might have been on the roof. The Kroger one also landed on the roof. Yeah. And listeners, if you happen to know whatever like hard boiled noir phrase there is for the like the guy who makes the bombs in the same way that, you know, your, your gun soul has mm. or your torch or anything yeah, else. Yeah. You know it. yeah. Where they called like a, like, like a, like a ball bomb or, or what? Tell us. First, we give him the demands. He laughed. He thought this is funny as hell. We set a deadline right at a peak period and over the road trucking prearranged signal. And at that hour, just all of a sudden, every wheelie had stopped between New York City and Oklahoma City. And they didn't turn again until we got the final report from the final business agent of the final local that every worker in that terminal received in his hand a check for the full settlement of the money the boss had cheated him out of by chiseling on the contract. And this demonstrated that it wasn't any class collaboration deal. And you can imagine what it did for the, for the morale of the, uh, of the truck drivers. So, when dealing with the thugs, of course, and the use of goon squads and stuff on all sides, one of the big mythologies about the Teamsters is how their relationship with the Mafia got started. And I've been trying to sort through this and noticing that, like, the, the sourcing never is that clear but in in why mafia capos would want to take over a local union is something that we're going to deal with in more detail with the next episode but the quick and short answer is like any racket your local gangster is happy mm -hmm. to go ahead and say that they actually have a legitimate business say mm -hmm. they're the head of union local yes and they can get income from that like mm -hmm. the union dues yeah and the way that they take that is by muscling in on the local yes you know, they might be incentivized to, like, quote-unquote, organize some places after that. Right. But mostly they're just coasting on extracting wealth from that, just like they would any protection any, racket yeah, any at all. Any business, any, anywhere they can get in. The thing about um, the, the La Casa Nostra, the LCN Mafia, is that they had enclaves within the Teamsters International. Like, the, the whole union had enclaves of locals that were mob-controlled, like, well before Hoffa ever set foot right. in the Kroger warehouse. Yes. I'm sorry, going back to the 20s, right. under Al Capone Chicago, there were IBT locals that had were controlled by gangsters. They weren't right. real locals. So I just want to state that right. at the outset. An important thing to know is with the type of businesses that the Teamsters are organizing at this time, mm -hmm. a lot of them are mob-controlled businesses because right. this is Detroit in the 30s. Yeah, and you're dealing with... You're dealing with, with businesses of all kinds, including 
like the kind of cash intensive businesses that you want for being a front or just to make money. Yeah. Uh, in a like way. a lot, a lot of cash solution around the business. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, bars need things delivered, beer and drinks and food and what have you, little groceries, laundries, uh, you know, ar arcades back when those were a thing. It was mostly pinball or what have you. Or So obviously if you're organizing those types of businesses, like, laundries cleaning services bars yeah, construction any of those you are going to run into people who don't need to go to another guy to hire a goon spot they own a goon spot probably a perfect example of this is a good friend of hoffa at the time ike litvak uh was organizing a guy named mo dallas's laundry chain mm -hmm. which was obviously also a front for him you know throwing in like cash from numbers rackets bootlegging and everything yeah. else through those laundry services, narcotics. And so he did what a good mafia boss does mm -hmm. to a guy who's about to cost him money by organizing his wor workers and having them mouth off to management. He uh, he put two goons on the guy mm -hmm. and tailed him everywhere he went. And they began beating the hell out of Ike Livback. Mm -hmm. And then Ike Livback apparently had a very smart response, which is he said, fellas, your job is to follow me around and rough me up. If you kill me, you'll be out of the job. And then what? Oh, yeah, what can you even say to that? And his own story, they, they continue beating him up, but he's like, they were cons they were a lot softer after yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, we gotta, be careful. We, we got to stress this out a little. Yeah, we're going to yeah. be the brethren. They're making a good per diem, yeah. So the kind of traditional accounts that I've seen in the Hoffa Wars and even to some extent uh, Sloan's book mm -hmm is that Hoffa had some kind of making of an agreement or an alliance with, you know, monolithic like the mafia in the 30s via a person named Silvia Pagano. Mm -hmm. So Silvia Pagano was a uh, union secretary, administrator, who rumor has it, and it's probably true, Hoffa dated at one time before he eventually married uh, Josephine. Pagano had a child already from a prior marriage named Charles O'Brien, who eventually becomes kind of like a son to Hoffa. Yeah. Pagano, for her part, later dated a guy named Tony, Tony Jack, in quotes, Jackaloni, mm -hmm. also in the 30s mm -hmm. and 40s who also becomes like another another father figure mm -hmm. to Chucky O'Brien. People probably know this from watching The Irishman, but there's not much about Sylvia Pagano in that. Mm -hmm. This is supposedly the source of Hoffa's relationship with the mafia. What I've seen from the books that quote Hoffa is that it was a much more gregarious, less contractual thing, mm -hmm. like everything in Hoffa's life, where there was like moment-to-moment -moment agreements and spinning alliances at any time that he dealt with gangsters, which he would regularly have to deal with mm. in order to not have organizers like Ike Litvak get killed, mm. which is, of course he knew Tony Giacalone, and he probably used that connection through Silvia Pagano and his own like kind of foster son mm -hmm. to make that friendship work. Yeah. But more than anything, I actually do believe Hoffa's account when he says that this was not an agreement from him to hire mafia muscle or right. or make an agreement like that one because they couldn't afford it yeah yeah and two local 299 never becomes like a mafia mm -hmm. local like the way local 560 eventually becomes 
it's more like at any given strike, he might have to pay off whatever local gangsters might want to come in, or they might make an agreement beforehand not to use their respective muscle on each other. Right. Yeah, because because they already had muscle. Yeah. The the Teamsters in Detroit, they didn't need to necessarily hire the mafia to do it. No. No. They need to make sure that they kept identifying, you know, good torches and strong arm guys mm-hmm. who came, you know, onto the onto the into the eyesight or into the view of the union as they mm-hmm. organize workplaces to bring them on as organizers, quote unquote. Yeah. But it still came largely from within. Yes. Is the thing. In his own book, Hoffa the Real Story, Hoffa just outright says, they asked if I know this guy, and then this guy, and this guy. I knew all of those guys. Yeah. I knew way more gangsters than they even right. asked yeah. me He knows all the guys. That's so, a good organizer knows a lot of people. That's kind of the point. He also got out of his way to say everyone was dealing with those people. The insurance company was yes. were dealing with those people. The businesses were dealing with yes. those people. I would be stupid not to deal with those people. Yes. He also, you know, he threw out, a, he threw out an accusatory finger. He's like, do you think... You know, Goody Two Shoes Walter Ruther wasn't also right. dealing with those people right. and bringing some of those people on. Mm-hmm. You had to. Yeah. So part of the reason we talk about these little like covert operations, like blowing up the black powder bombs and, you know, bringing on these strong arm guys is because I think they serve as a bit of a distraction to a lot of people in thinking about the Teamsters compared mm-hmm. to the real effective tactics. It's kind of like how special ops like gets all this yeah glory yeah, these days the glory. compared to like infantry right actually yeah i mean if you really want to get technical about what wins american wars you would probably want to have glamorous stories of like our massive logistical change yeah but no one's going to do that yeah or or it's like how like like basically the the strong arm guys and these more specialized guys like a torch, which is a guy who will will burn down like mm-hmm. a part of a business, or will set a truck on fire with a time bomb, and can do it effectively mm-hmm. and not be caught because of how they set it and how they conceal the bomb, all of which is a skill. Yeah, that guy will get considerably more attention just because of the headlines and everything mm-hmm. than your run of the mill picket walker, mm-hmm. or even like the people on flying squads going yeah. from workplace to workplace as they picket. In yeah. a large thing. So we're about to talk about the real tactics here. Mm-hmm. One thing that the Brotherhood of Teamsters in the 30s could really do that was unique to them was they could just blockade places using their trucks. Yes. The material reality of a truck. I'm, I meant to talk about this a little bit, uh, just more towards the end, I guess, but I, I love Anne Belay's writing and, and the speeches she gives on the experience of being a trucker. Mm. Specifically, she talks about how when you're inside this machine, you're able to just say, like, fuck you and getting your truck and drive off. Yeah. And it feels like this, like, huge, like, worrying extension of yourself. Mm. <laughs> and an interviewer even asked her, like, he's like, do you mean, like, a mech suit? Do you mean, like, this <laughs> and she's like, yeah, like, kind of like that. <laughs> she was a trucker yeah, for yeah. a long time. She's like, when you ha- learn to float the gears and you have your constant attention on all these gauges and stuff like that, like, it becomes a part of you and you feel really powerful. Yeah, And so you can imagine to organizers, especially guys who came out of warehouses, like oh, sure. Hoffa and Calhoun and the rest, that these guys, and we're talking about local drivers here, driving like modified Model Ts and Model As and shit, mm-hmm. being able to just take their trucks, take their tools, 
which didn't necessarily legally belong to them, right, but yeah. in reality they were moving. Yeah, you know, and blockade say the like the fruit deep or the produce terminal, <laughs> and say all of these places are going, all these places around here are going to become union places, yeah. or none of your stuff moves. Yeah. It's a powerful thing. Right. It's a strawberry strike writ large. It's all going to rock. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be that. I know it can be other goods. Goods need to move. But yeah, same basic uh, kind of concept. And to give our listeners like an idea of what this looked like a bit, I will quote from Russell's book. On March 24th, Hoffa and Brennan, as you know, and Bert Brennan, directed a blockade of the Detroit Union Produce Terminal, a central depot that distributed perishable foods to every grocery store and wholesaler in the city at 4 a.m 200 trucks 200 mm. trucks driven by teamster members and owned by companies under teamster contracts filled the streets around the produce terminal shutting off most of the city's fresh food supply later that day hoffa was quoted in the detroit news rejecting an appeal that would allow some food to be moved to a tuberculosis sanitarium on march 25th hoffa and brennan issued an ultimatum through the press declaring that unless the 400 employees of the terminal Join Teamsters Local 337. The blockade will stay in effect till the last brick falls out of the terminal. Mm, damn. Now, besides blockades, of course, a lot of the power of these trucks comes from the fact that every one of these businesses, whether it's a factory, whether it's a shop, like you said, Peter, needs to be resupplied mm. with the stuff from other businesses. Yes. But if Teamsters control the trucking, can't necessarily no. get the supplies in. So there was a lot of mutual assistance given from, and they'll have their own jurisdictional fights later on, the United Auto Workers to mm -hmm. the Teamsters and vice versa. Um, famously, during the Fisher auto plant strike, the Teamsters just were like, we're not going to cross the picket line. We're not going to resupply the parts in this factory, mm -hmm. period. The uh, organizing the truck drivers, though, really becomes effective, however, when they organize what we would call long-haul truck drivers. Mm -hmm. But at the time, they called over-the-road Truck drivers. Uh, as opposed to down the down the streets. And maybe it's a good time for a break. Yeah. Of course, there's people who drive smaller trucks doing deliveries from warehouses to shops in the city. And then there's over-the-road truck drivers. Mm -hmm. Bigger trucks. Bigger trucks. Longer distances. Driving from city to city, from freight terminal to freight terminal, basically across the entire country. Dan Tobin, who was the head of the Teamsters Union at the time, actually hated the idea of even the fact that locals were trying to organize these people. Huh. He literally called them scum. Wow. What was the branch down by that? They, the over-the-road truck drivers, and I mean, there's just a whole aspect to long-haul truck driving. They're kind of like rootless mm. and in continual motion. Right. And I think there's like long in the association of like they, and especially at this time, that they are kind of like almost like sailor like they're just vagabonds who travel from town yeah, to town. Yeah, or like the you know uh, derogatory term for the Romani people. Yeah, uh, you know, not to be trusted because they could just pick up sticks and go whenever they want. You can't control them, right? And that they're like they're like kind of beyond society's reach because they're just all on their own, right? Yeah. They're just in your truck. God knows what. Yeah, and. Uh, in reality, you know, long I, long haul truck driving, as uh, Kate Belay talked a lot about in Anne, her Anne Belay. Oh, sorry, Anne, Anne Belay talked a lot about in her work. 
it's actually very attractive to people who are really like tied down and shat upon in kind of these confined space mm -hmm. normal workplaces which is why it's so attractive in, in her view now to lgbtq people immigrants you see a lot of like punjabi truck drivers yeah i love how the stereotype of the trucker is is basically this a lot closer to the stereotype of like i don't know a pizza shop owner like <laughs> in reality like a, like a small restaurateur like a you know uh angry prosperous bellied white person with rage issues uh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I know I'm sure plenty of them drive trucks too. All kinds of people drive. Yeah, trucks, she, she, she was the first thing. Like, there, there is a fair amount of that too. Yeah, yeah, of course. But, but there's also many other people drive because you need a hell of a lot of long haul truckers to make this economy work. Yeah, and that's increasingly the case even in the 30s, right? Yeah. So the, these are the people who also being at that they're at the margins at the time are very scared of losing their job. Yes. Then they're just cut off in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. But still, you you know, these guys on the big rigs were driving them for mile after mile. It's a very lonely job. Mm -hmm. You know, you can go kind of crazy on that. And they also see a lot of stuff on right. the road. Terrible accents because they're oftentimes the only people on the road who are definitely gonna be on at any time. Yeah. So they see horrifically mangled people. Oof. And during the depression, since they're going from town to town and city to city, and from going from countryside to city and back again, they're seeing a lot of what the country looks like. Right. And it's scary as hell. Mm -hmm. So this sounds like a like a job for Jimmy. <laughs> Organizing Jimmy. these guys. Yeah, so. Hoff is local, along with the Trotskyist uh, locals in Minneapolis, decide that they're going to organize these over-the-road truck drivers. Um, although this is kind of like a parallel mm -hmm. process, right? And you know, to say what actually happens is Hoff gets the idea that rather than or trying to get these guys at like a truck stop or mm -hmm. a company or something, because they're in continuous motion going from place to place, uh, he just drives along until he sees truck drivers or sometimes walks along roads after getting a ride somewhere until he sees truck drivers that are pulled over on the side of the road mm. taking a sleep. Yeah. Because uh, you're in order to cover these long distances, particularly back then, the speeds that the trucks were able to get to, you're, you won't have to take a break at some point. Yeah. Even if it's just a few minutes, even if it's an hour. Yeah, pretty much any of those signs you ever see along the highway about like, take a break, that's pretty much all directed to truckers. They're not directed to commuters. Yeah, and they're also getting like contradictory instructions from their companies. Right. Like, these days, the, the company actually views them through a camera in the cab. Oh, sure. It's terrible. But uh, Hoffa says at the time, it was a challenging job trying to organize. First, they didn't want to be organized. They were scared to death of their bosses. Second, they were rarely around town, being on long-haul jobs most of the time. Third, employers resisted organizational efforts with every trick in the book. I decided, therefore, that the best way to talk to these long-haul drivers out of your shot of the boss mm. was to meet them out on the highway. If you went far enough out, you'd find them beside the road taking a cat nap. I know it's an old legend believed by few nowadays nowadays, but it is nevertheless true that some of those fellows would light a cigarette and sleep until it burned down and awakened them by scorching their fingers. Mm. They had to rest, but they couldn't rest long, and we would catch them in that short interval. 
And he talks about, like, it's kind of a scary thing approaching these guys because also they're under very real danger of being oh, robbed, yeah. particularly close to the city. Sure. By any gang of people, any stick-up crew of people who yeah, can, yeah. give me the truck's contents. Yeah. Or give me whatever they call it. Right. Or the truck. Mm-hmm. You know, and then that's it. That's their livelihood gone. Yeah. Especially if they were an uh, owner-operator. Mm-hmm. So these guys would sit in there taking catnaps with like a tire iron or a gun yeah, yeah. or a wrench. And Hoffa's job was to walk up to the door and be like, hello, I'm from the International <laughs> yeah, Brotherhood yeah, Teamsters. Yeah. Talk to me and don't kill me. Yeah, don't hit me with that wrench, please. So he, he says he got really good at delivering his pitch very, very fast. Mm. So they could know immediately who he was, yeah, that yeah. he wasn't there to rob him as they woke up. Yeah. Uh, but the truck companies got wind of this and they had their own countermeasure, which is, uh, which he, he reels out here. I'll just quote from him again. But the companies knew what was going on. One day I spotted a rig parked on the highway in a lonely stretch of road. I pulled in behind it, walked up to the cab, and when I couldn't open the door, I yelled, Hey, you awake? And the door shot open and two goons carrying blackjacks piled out right on top of me. I never had a chance. They beat me right on the ground. Just before it passed out, one of them grabbed me by the throat and lifted my head on the ground and said, that's just a sample. Stay away from our trucks. Next time you're dead. Mm-hmm. You're dead, Hoffa. So there's a little bit of a cat and mouse game that goes on here. The The Teamsters switch to using two-man teams because they figure, like, if they can just send, if they can only pay for two goons. Right. Like, we, we, we can just take the goons. Yeah. We have two people. Um, so then the companies start putting the, like, several goons in a car to follow their own long-haul truckers. Oh, wow. And then have them park and act like they're in wait, like it's bait. Right. And then when the Teamster car would pull up, they would ambush the Teamster car. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, you know, that not for nothing, but that that, that that's costly. Like, yeah. you figure goons probably, I don't know whether they charge more or less than truckers, I would imagine more. And they got a, well, I guess if you have two of them, one could drive and one could sleep, but if yeah. they're trying to keep up with trucker hours, that's, they're probably not goons I, at their I, best. Yeah, they didn't make it, Hoffa didn't make it clear, and like the biographies didn't make it clear. What I suspect happened was that they they paid a trucker just to go ahead and take his, oh, right. his rig yeah. a little so bit outside the city. literally tailing them the whole way. Right, right. I think they, makes I think sense, they, yes. they had a guy go out on like a bait truck. Uh, o- over time, though, they did win over these long haul truckers. It, in the greater Michigan area, basically. Uh, and I <laughs> I made a stupid analogy, but honestly, I do think that like the long haul truckers end up being like the fremen of the American mm-hmm. labor movement. They're these like guys that are fucking out there uncontacted. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, is when they do get organized, they take their union cards and what it did for them and they take it from city to city. Mm. And this is the way actually, and also, you know, if they don't work, that cuts off the supply line mm-hmm. to the next node in the whole transportation uh, chain. The, to the, the next spice city. stops flowing. The spice stops flowing, and everyone pays attention to the truckers. Mm. The guy who saw this more than anyone, though, in the Teamsters Union, uh, was Feral Dobbs. Mm. Over-the-road truckers were Feral Dobbs's baby. He thought they would be like missionaries going from city to city, and that if you won them over, if you organized them, if you showed them what the union could do, what working class organization and solidarity could do, then you could control the transportation hubs, and then you could cut off any 
workplace and mm -hmm. force them to come to the table. Mm -hmm. So who else is feral dogs anyway? I like your pretended ignorance, Peter. Oh, yeah, I'm pretending. Oh, yeah, and everyone will know it's pretend because I talked about in the last book about how his book was good and compared to Thucydides. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. But no, Farrell Dows was, was a member of the Communist League of America mm -hmm. at the time, a uh, small but very feisty, very well-organized Trotskyist group. Yes. They were not following the Moscow party line. They were they were on their own doing doing what Trotskyites do, organizing and getting in a lot of arguments. But in uh, in Dobbs's case and his compatriots, they did much more organizing than arguing. Yes, to their credit. Uh, oh yeah, it, it's it's good to do both. He in his local they had a similarly very tight team as Local Two Ninety Nine, but they were all Communist League of America members <laughs> and ideological. He said that Carl Scoglin was kind of the strict, the strategist overall, mm -hmm. uh, and that Ray Don and his brother were were the tactics guys. I see. They were the guys saying like where the flying squad should go, uh -huh. which terminals should be blocked off, and so on. They saw the truck drivers, in his view, as key to the Minneapolis labor, move, the labor movement, and Dobbs saw them as key to the labor movement across the entire Midwest mm -hmm. and thus the country, because everything has to flow through the Midwest. Yes. Dobbs's kind of dream, his vision, was that these kind of converted truck drivers go from city to city, having been organized, would say, why are you organized? Mm -hmm. Or would find out about worker struggles going on in, say, St. Louis or in Omaha, Nebraska. Those guys would say, well, we need help. Our, our, our boss, you know, we're, we're getting killed on this organizing drive. They're bringing in scabs. Don't worry about it. We'll cut off your boss right here. Mm -hmm. We won't drive this stuff from St. Louis to Omaha, Nebraska yes. until he comes to the table. Yes. And that means that whoever it is on the other side, both sides, you know, the people in New York and the people in California also have a vested interest in doing what the central states drivers want because they need to get stuff over that territory. Yeah. And Dobbs, Dobbs was operating within... Uh, obviously very fragmented, very moribund mm. union with the Teamsters. Yeah, and so he had to basically build an entire separate organization within right. the Teamsters to coordinate this yes. kind of campaign. The Teamsters were not known for their militants or radicalism before dogs came along. No, definitely not. And they definitely weren't known for thinking this big no. at all. It was a very parochial yes. use in a lot of ways. But Dobbs organized the Central States Drivers Council, which kind of created this separate body over all of these locals across the Midwest. And he mapped out where the transportation hubs were for every single like kind of node in the trucking network. So if vegetables actually had to go from the Imperial Valley all the way up to Detroit, Dobbs knew every single hub and terminal that those trucks would have to unload and reload and so we could find out which ones you could shut off <laughs> and then pull down the whole system right so that rather than having to unionize companies he would unionize whole areas whole hubs <laughs> and he would demand that every employer in that area had to sign on with the teamsters <laughs> or no more goods yeah which is exactly the kind of thing that really terrified the bourgeoisie of this country and helps go into the kind of laundry list of anti-labor 
the, the anti-labor wish list uh, that would go into law that we call Taft-Hartley. Yeah. Uh, but that's not that's not for a little while yet. Exactly. Although it, it is worth saying, even at this point, that if Hoffa hadn't been introduced this kind of vision by Dobbs, Hoffa probably wouldn't be anybody big. Right. And two, he wouldn't have ended up dead. Yeah. The way that he died. Right. Because this strategy, if you just open it up to its kind of logical conclusion, mm -hmm means that you will organize every worker in the country yes. because every workplace that depends on any kind of shipping at all could be cut off mm. unless they play ball with your organization. So, and also you can win them a lot of benefits because oh, yeah. any, any demand you have, you can just cut off the employer. The, in the words of one Teamster organizer much later on in Alaska, when you have them by the balls, the rest usually falls. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you got to say, you know, I, I hope people don't think that I that I shit on Trotskyists unduly. You know, I think it, I don't make jokes about or about movements like I don't make jokes like that about movements that I genuinely hate. So but you could say that Dobbs was a real student of Trotsky, Trotsky, the military organizer. Yes. The, the, the self-taught master strategist. And that's what Dobbs Dobbs was that as well. So Hoffa is literally sent by 299 to like learn at the feet of Dobbs. 299 can see what Dobbs is doing in the Midwest with the Central States Drivers Council, mm -hmm. what happened in Minneapolis, all of the gains that they're winning, including even for like independent owner operators. Right. They would get allowances to, to go ahead and, and shift out parts on their rigs, which is something that otherwise would really cut in their pay. And divides the labor movement. It yes. makes them potential scabs and everything else. Hoffa studied under Dobbs, and he studied this entire organizing strategy for like several years until Dobbs really got on the bad side of the international itself. And uh, this has a lot of minutiae in it, but basically Dobbs's political commitments uh, being in a member of the Communist League of America should have, by the Teamsters' own constitution, gotten him kicked out already. Mm -hmm. Like we said before, the guy who controlled the Teamster at this time, Dan Tobin, is very much a business unionist. He's mm -hmm. also a new dealer, but that's mostly for pragmatic purposes. Yeah. Like he was as much a new dealer as Hoffa was a Nixon supporter. Right. You, you might be able to say. Yeah. But Tobin got into the Constitution in 1936, a clause that no Teamster officer can be a member of the Communist Party or sorry, an, a, or any communist organization. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Communist League of America kind of says it in the name. Mm -hmm. But the critical thing is, is that they were bringing in dues. They were bringing mm -hmm. in members. They were organizing hubs. And yeah, they were expanding the, the power of the organization. And at one point, you know, legend has it that Tobin offered Dobbs a vice president position mm -hmm. in the Teamsters if he would shut off the political stuff. Interesting. But the, uh, the political position that really got him kicked off though and and purged and a lot of the Trotskyists purged from the Teamsters Union at that time mm -hmm. was that they opposed U.S. entry into World War II mm -hmm. and they thought that workers should not join in World War II and even maybe that there should be strikes that effect. Yeah that was a real mistake on the part of I mean they 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 didn't know entirely what was going on it's it's kind of like what I what I've been saying about how one of the great things about Trotsky Trotskyists is that they come up with plans, but then they stick with the plan. 
even when the plan is manifestly a bad idea. And the plan was, we're not doing any more of these capitalist wars. Great. We're not going to, and you know, sure as shit, they weren't going to fight for Stalin, Soviet Union. But then it turns out to be World War II, and you kind of got to do the thing. Sounds like a time for a split. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That was Isaac saying at that time. Get mad at him. So in the end, Trotsky's were expelled from the Teamsters, but they actually went and it was just straight up joined the, the CIO and mm. started organizing their own unions. Yeah, yeah. There's a back and forth. Hoffa was literally dispatched and with police support, in a very scummy way, tried to purge the Trotskyists out of Minneapolis, which was their stronghold. Wow. When was this? 41. Huh. So Dobbs would have been alive. Oh, yeah. yeah well alive. Yeah. Dobbs was alive until like... The 70s, yeah. Or yeah. the 90s, I don't know. I think it was, yeah, it, yeah, long time. I think yeah. it was the seventies. Yeah, long lived. But he's he, weren't they? Didn't they keep in touch even after that? That's the weird part. Is I I wasn't able to find out if there was like correspondence between them. But yeah. there really seemed to be some kind of communication because you can look at Dobbs's review of books about Hoffa. Uh -huh. I've looked at old copies of the backing up a little bit. Dobbs leaves the the Teamsters Union and the subsequent CIO unions to go ahead and join the Socialist Workers Party. <laughs> the kind of the successor to the League, Communist League of America, mm -hmm. and becomes several times their presidential candidate mm -hmm. and leader. He has a, a lot of editorial pull, you might say, on their newspaper, which was called The Militant. I've gone back through The Militant archives. They usually don't have a single bad word to say about Hoffa. Interesting. Which you would think if Hoffa was like this like prime mover who like Dobbs blamed for purging him from the Teamsters. And yeah kicking all of his friends and the Dunn brothers out that he would hold some kind of enmity, but... Right. Because plenty of plenty of people from the movement still do. Yeah. And, and I mean, for right. good reason. For good reason. But as you alluded to, Peter, this kind of organizing, which still goes on, they're still organizing over-the-road truckers all through World War II. Sure. They're organizing afterwards. That raises heads right yeah and the big business owners all over the country really do become afraid of the teamsters organizing power along right. with that of every other working class union right in the united states particularly particularly when you use your control over a certain part of production as leverage to gain access to more points of production yeah that's the part that i think really scares people or scares the bourgeoisie you know you can have like an individual starbucks store yeah. or a laundry or what have you get organized and they can say okay we'll write that off or maybe we'll yeah. take a loss there when you're using this production site these tools mm -hmm. like trucks to say no every one of these is going to be organized yeah every one of them has all the starbucks are organized now no more uh no more Nora Jones CDs and chocolate-covered espresso beans. We're firing all the little bastards. Or yes. Yeah, every little bastard at every start. I'm sure there's at least one in each. Yeah, they're all looking at things like Yeah. That's scary a lot. Yes. And the thing is, too, is that more importantly than their simply their fear over losing like complete despotic control is also it, it will cut the bottom line. Yes. There's no way around that. So you have the beginnings of congressional action to start restricting all of these tactics that we've been talking mm -hmm. about. And in particular, one that I wanted to talk about in detail here, which is the secondary boycott. Mm -hmm. This is probably 
the closest thing that the Teamsters had to like the nuke. Yeah. Like this was the bomb. Mm -hmm. And lots of unions use secondary boycotts and sympathy strikes, at least before they became banned. Mm -hmm. But the Teamsters use of it was probably the most effective because of their location in the supply chain. Mm -hmm. Them and like dock workers mm -hmm. and warehouse workers. A secondary boycott is when and we've described this a lot here already on the episode, but when a workplace or a bunch of workplaces are having their own union dispute, whether it's the company doesn't want to recognize the union or the workers wanted uh, different wages and benefits and they're demanding that from the boss and they don't do that and they go on strike. In addition to that strike at that first workplace with your secondary boycott, you block off that employer or those employers mm -hmm. from getting goods shipped to them. Mm -hmm. So, like we said, if you have like dock workers in LA on strike and you're the Kingsters organizers and you're doing a secondary boycott, what you do is you say our drivers aren't picking up anything from that dock. Mm, yeah. And then that company's fine. It doesn't even matter if they bring in scabs. Right. They can't move their stuff off the dock. Yeah. So that powerful weapon was made illegal. Yes. Yeah, you know, um, freedom of association only uh, takes you so far in this country if you don't, if you're not a millionaire. So I know there's been a lot of talk about like card check and organizing with um, the Pro Act. Yeah, yeah. But if you want to know what has restrained American labor, a lot of it is the restriction on what they can do for tactics. Yes. And it's not just, you know, bombings and shit. Yeah, yeah. Even right. though it's the fun stuff for us. Uh -huh. It's stuff like the secondary boycott. It's being able to take the truck and say, nothing moves off that dock. Yes. Sorry, we're all union here. We're not scabbing on your Yeah, it, it, because, because what it managed to do many of the provisions of the Taft-Hartley Act is break, not not break up individual unions, so I'm sure it did that too, but break the unions, basically make the unions roughly correspondent to the industries, right? And, and ban anything like, you know, what the industries have in terms of like a national association of manufacturers or whatever. It makes them all have to work as these individual units looking out for their own individual interest and makes it much more difficult for them to fight as a labor movement as a whole or as a class. Yeah, you might say an injury to one is injury all, but if you can't act on it, then it's just it, it's just an injury to that guy. Yeah. Even though it's still, in fact, yeah, an injury, injury to you. By the way, one of the provisions of the PRO Act, mm. which has been reintroduced in the Congress, mm. is it repeals the secondary boycott provision of Tad Harley. Oh, great. That's so, cool. listeners, on this half a death day, uh -huh. write into your Congress people yeah. and say, I want you to pass the Pro Act, knowing full well that they can't. Just, yeah. We're gonna, just going to keep jamming that through. And maybe, maybe, maybe we should yeah. have some trucks blockade Congress. Yeah, right. They don't get their, their cigars or whatever it is, their, the pancakes. Or the, yeah. Well, there is a congressional candy drawer. Yeah. <laughs> they were not refilled, the M&Ms and the, the, the Mike and Ike's. That actually might cause some some severe mental breakdown. It might. More than we already see. Well, Peter, I think that's an episode. Me too. Thanks, folks. Goodbye, friends. See you next time. <laughs>